At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. A wonderful mix of music awaits you this hour. Pianist Conrad Tao takes us on a grand tour through the jazz-influenced piano concerto of Maurice Ravel, which he performs with the Atlanta Symphony this weekend. Plus, now dig this, a retro vibe program on People TV featuring bands from Atlanta's rich indie music scene. First... In January, City Lights rolled out a new series called The Art of Teaching, featuring Georgia educators whose dedication and creativity make a lasting impact on students, often turning their passions into professions. Today, we're talking with Dr. Charles Parrott, Associate Professor in the Department of Theater and Performance Studies at Kennesaw State University. He also directs the KSU Tellers, a storytelling troupe. Dr. Parrott, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's a pleasure to be here. Would you tell us about your path to becoming a KSU professor? So my path? to the place where I am now uh, has essentially two parts. One, uh, back in the day, I used to be a speech and debate coach in the college level. And I loved that mostly because I loved working with students and helping them create material for competition that was meaningful and enriching to them. I also have a PhD in communication and my specific area is thinking about aesthetic communication and performance. And those two things go together well when you think about the ways that we can help students create performances of their own. When I applied for a job here at KSU, they were particularly looking for someone to coach and direct the KSU Tellers, the storytelling troupe. And I was, I think, a really good candidate for that because of my experience in forensics and also my experience in academic performance studies, being able to bring those two things together to create a program that has, I think, uh, been very enriching to a lot of students for many years now. So we have heard, backing up a moment, forensics, we usually think about a coroner's office or, you know, Mm -hmm. criminal justice. Where does forensics come in with your work? You know, that's a great question. When we think about, like, say, on a CSI type show and they're doing forensic evidence at a crime scene, what they're doing is they're gathering evidence to make a case against the criminal usually. And similarly, speech and debate programs sometimes are called forensics because that is uh, comes from a Greek root that has to do with gathering evidence to make an argument. And so whether you're doing persuasive speaking or doing Lincoln-Douglas debate or whatever kind of performance you're doing, it has that quality of collecting evidence to make a case. Ah, thank you. So what are some of the courses you teach at KSU? Well, I teach a variety of courses in our performance studies part of our program that all of our students have to take. I teach an introduction to performance studies course. I teach an amazing class called Performing Culture, which is about the performance of identity. And students eventually write their own narratives about their life experiences in relationship to a larger cultural phenomenon. And that is enormously useful for our students to sort of 
dive deep into who they are, where they come from. I also teach another class that I created called American Performance Traditions that is a survey of a bunch of different pieces of American history and popular culture that run parallel to theater history. So while there is conventional and traditional theater history, simultaneous to that, there is wrestling and carnivals and circuses and stand-up comedy and vaudeville and uh, minstrel shows and that kind of thing. So that class deals with all of those kinds of things, American popular entertainment. That's a blast. And then every semester, I teach a class called Storytelling Practicum, which is the home of the KSU Tellers, which is the uh, storytelling ensemble here in the department. And can students join the Tellers to earn course credit? Yeah, absolutely. They get course credit every semester for taking it, and it can also be repeated more than once. And the class is really designed to help students figure out the things that they want to say and to build the skills that they need to say them. Most of our students come from a fairly conventional like high school theater background where uh, their teacher selects a play and they cast it and they put on costumes and they do it. The material that we create in Tellers is almost entirely generated by the students. Sometimes that has to do with like the adaptation of folklore or the taking of a history piece and um, shaping that into a performance that you can do. But our signature thing that we do is autobiographical solo performance or personal narrative solo performance, where you take the stories from your life and shape them into a performance that captures something about the human experience. If NPR listeners are familiar with a show like The Moth, a lot of times it feels a bit like that. Mm. And can any student join or is there an audition process for the KSU Tellers? So if people want to be in the KSU Tellers, there is an audition process. Usually that has to do with talking to me, perhaps doing a performance. I'll tell you, as opposed to a traditional theater director where their vision is what plays out on the stage or a film director where their vision plays out in the movie, I see myself less like a director in that sense and more like a record producer which is to say that uh, the students come in and they're the artist. The story they want to do is the song. And it's my job to help them make that sound as good as it can and to look as good as it can. And it's my job to figure out what is interesting about that person and how can I show that to the audience? To be honest, the thing that keeps me going with this job and with this activity, with this group, is that the students are so endlessly interesting. Really often, they don't see themselves that way. And another part of my job is helping them see themselves the way that I see them, which is as special, interesting, unique, important. <laughs> it's exciting to hear how enthusiastic you are from what you receive in the process. How does the platform, the KSU Tellers, help the students become better communicators. That could go for your other performance classes. Tellers is uniquely situated to help people become better communicators for a number of reasons. First of all, you have to believe in yourself and believe in what you're doing. And you have to, that is like a muscle that you have to exercise. It is something that you have to cultivate over time. And doing this on a weekly basis helps to do that. It also helps them because it shows them how the process works. So they start with an idea and a lot of times they will stand up in class and start talking without a script or with anything like that, just starting to work things out out loud and then seeing this is good, but it doesn't work for this story and I need to cut it or or this story itself has these problems or these constraints and have figuring out how to overcome them. These are all important steps in the process that helps them become a better communicator. Finally, um, when we do public performances, whether they be off campus or on campus, they have to figure out how to command a room and a command attention of an audience and to make that audience feel at ease about that situation. It's an important skill, but almost any young person can learn that skill if they are sufficiently motivated to do so, which is interesting because on the other side of the coin, a lot of people feel that public speaking, storytelling, getting up in front of people and doing a performance is like a magic trick. They just don't know how anyone did it. When in reality, everyone can do it if they're sufficiently motivated and willing to put a little faith in themselves. I like your optimism about how any young person can do this. I would think for many people, the autobiographical aspect of what you are asking them to do isn't so easy in terms of sharing 
more intimate moments from their lives or personal stories. That's exactly right. That is not easy for everyone. And we certainly do not ever push someone to tell the most painful or, or excruciating story. If you want to be a storyteller in the long term, you have to be able to figure out how to take relatively mundane things and make them interesting because you won't have enough terrible things, hopefully, that happen to you in your life that are like sort of are delivered to you as good stories. So we don't ever push anybody to talk any, talk about anything they don't want to talk about. And a lot of times that means that students do something sort of more lighthearted, something about growing up. I always say that our students, all their stories are coming of age stories because that's literally the only thing they've ever done. Mm -hmm. And uh, so sometimes there's like lighthearted kid stories that get you under your, get your feet under you and help you understand what you're doing. And then the next time it might be a little bit more revealing and intimate. The other thing I want to say about that question is that there are some folks that I work with, uh, students who are autistic or students who are trans students and a variety of other kinds of students who their mere presence in front of an audience is in some way self-disclosing and revealing. You know what I mean? And so one of the things that's so beautiful about what we do is that we're able to, over time, with the support of the ensemble and the other students in the class, and with my close coaching, we're able to help those students lean into who they are. So often acting in the traditional sense is about disappearing into a character, whereas storytelling is about making who you really are appear in front of an audience. And it can be very edifying and gratifying to students to be themselves fully and authentically themselves in front of an audience and lean into that, make that part of the game, part of the deal, and to then receive applause and laughter and cheers and congratulations for being authentically who they are uh, in front of an audience. And that that's especially true when who they authentically are isn't always understood or accepted within the broader culture. I read though one of your favorite phrases to say in class is education should never be an emergency. Would you expand upon that? Where did you read that? Oh, do I divulge my sources? Your sources? <laughs> okay. So yes, I often tell my students on the first day of class that education should not be an emergency. And that means two things. Number one, I'm not going to ask them to do anything unreasonable that seems too strange. I'm going to give them plenty of time and I'm going to tell them what my expectations are. And if they choose to get very behind and not turn in a bunch of assignments and then come to me and say, oh, I've got this big problem. And I say, well, you, this wasn't an emergency until you kind of made it one. And there's no need it, reason it needed to be that way. So make a promise to yourself here on the first day, you're going to do everything you can not to make education an emergency. And on my end of the deal, I promise them that I'm not going to suddenly make the class a lot harder or change a bunch of due dates and make something due earlier or say, we're having a test that I never told you about because I don't think education should be an emergency. At its best, especially when we're talking about college and college students, at its best, the educational situation should create the circumstances where students can make projects and do research that is interesting and exciting to them. And that elevates what they're doing beyond the level of mere homework and gives them a sense of agency and authority over the work. It makes it something they want to make and it belongs to them as opposed to a test or a quiz or something that just feels like homework. When we don't make it an emergency, then we can we can have that experience. Would you share some stories of KSU alumni who have remained in touch with you or have expressed profound thanks for the role you played in their lives? Oh, you're making me blush on the radio, Lois. <laughs> yeah, we've had a number of alums who do really wonderful things. One of our alums is the education director currently at Dad's Garage. His name is Magad Rushdie. Oh, and yes. uh, Magad and I have got to now work together as peers and as colleagues, and he is a wonderful example. I've had several students who have gone into graduate school. One of them is studying anthropology. A couple of them are studying education. And I have a former student who's now in law school I just heard from the other day. And she told me about all of the attrition that was happening in her first year law school class, but she was doing great. And I truly believe 
there's research about this, but I also believe it, that the ability to express yourself, the ability to work together in teams, the ability to write, and the ability to think critically, and the ability to have a point of view, these are all crucial skills for people in the future. And it's also what the research tells us is that employers, these are the skills that they want. Now, I have worked in a university for years. The last job I had that wasn't like that, I was renting VHS tapes at a video store. That's how long ago it was. But I, I, I understand now from seeing their successes that those skills, they're able to take those out into the world and to be really productive and happy members of society, which makes me thrilled. Dr. Charles Parrott, Kennesaw State University Associate Professor in the Department of Theater and Performance Studies and Director of the KSU Tellers. More information about Dr. Parrott, along with our series, The Art of Teaching, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, pianist and composer Conrad Tao joins us ahead of his upcoming performances with the Atlanta Symphony. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The award-winning, dynamic American pianist and composer Conrad Tao returns to perform with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra as soloist in the piano concerto of French composer Maurice Ravel. Ahead of those ASO concerts on February 23rd and 24th, Comrade Tao joins me via Zoom to talk about the music on that program. Welcome back to City Lights. Great to be back. We last spoke when your violin concerto, performed by Stefan Jakiv, opened the ASO's 2021-22 season. So this time, you are entirely in the role of soloist. Like you, Maurice Ravel was a pianist as well as composer. And he originally intended to play this piece on an international tour. The concerto famously opens with the crack of a musical whip. Where does it take us from there? It takes us on a colorful, joyful romp, really, through, in my mind, it's this very 1920s Parisian landscape, which funnily enough also includes some 1920s Americana in the landscape.
to say it contains American jazz in the landscape. What we can hear throughout this entire concerto, I would say across all three movements, but most foregrounded in the outer movements, the first and last movements, but you can really hear the influence of American jazz on Ravel. Uh, American jazz was hugely popular in Paris in the 1920s, and it is completely reasonable to assume that Ravel was just as enamored of this new form, this new kind of music as the rest of France at the time. Yeah, I think they called it le jazz hot, yes, or maybe yes, they would yes. have said le jazz hot. Yeah. We hear jazz <laughs> as the piccolo and the trumpet introduce that playful main theme. And then there's a more meditative piano solo interwoven there. Is he trying to evoke a blue note? I mean, he does evoke the blue note throughout the piece. I do think that that first quasi-improvisational piano solo is uh, is gesturing towards blue notes and uh, jazz improvisation and the sort of glissandi, this interest in the space between the steps uh, that we associate with classical music, uh, this, this kind of blurring. I remember when I first learned this piece uh, as a teenager, uh, that my teacher, uh, Veda Kaplinsky, described this piano entrance in the first movement. This little gesture. She described it to me as like, you're finding a way to make the piano slide. You're trying to find a, a way to make the piano slide between, between these notes. And... And of course, this is something that the piano is almost fundamentally incapable of doing. This is something that the piano is fundamentally incapable of doing. The piano is a very step-oriented instrument. The piano is a very digital instrument in that regard. It is 88 keys, and each key, you make a decision what that key is tuned to. And so to slide between two keys is not actually physically, is not literally possible. And so I do think that uh, Ravel is trying to evoke something that is out of the realm of direct possibility and lives somewhere else, some other poetic realm. It's a, it's a scoop. It's a slide. It's a, it's. I suppose it's the sound of a kind of freedom. Oh, that's fantastic. The slow second movement is particularly beautiful. How would you describe the long melody for solo piano that begins the second movement?
I don't even know if I have a word to describe it or how it feels. It's it's a melody that seems unending. It seems as though it wraps around this pulsating rhythm in the piano's left hand, this this regular waltz-like rhythm, although to only interpret it as a waltz I think would would be missing the point. It's it's this kind of gentle rocking back and forth over which there's just this long flowing melody that just wraps around and and travels never without direction and yet it's a direction that uh, you do not feel Ravel's hand too aggressively. It it, it is as though the m- melody is uh, inspired by its environment. And I I bring all of this up because I think I'm going to misquote him or I'm going to paraphrase him, but I believe Ravel has been quoted as saying, "Oh, that that damn first melody. That first <laughs> melody how I how I like toiled over it, like how how I slaved over it to make it sound as natural as it does." I love that because I know as a as a composer myself, I know how much work it often can be to make something sound effortless and organic which is what the music ends up sounding like yeah almost improvised i think yes exactly i i also for me there is something about that opening i mean that that opening is very special to me personally i have a a very formative memory of practicing this piece uh, when i was first learning it and practicing it at the Aspen Music Festival, at the campus of the Aspen Music Festival, which is a campus very much in the mountains, and there is a creek running through it. And I was on campus in the evening after the sun had gone down, and I was one of the only people in this practice area. And these practice rooms were open to the elements. The doors opened right out to the outdoors. And they had windows as well. And so I was practicing at night with the windows open, practicing this opening of the second movement. And I could hear the sort of insect hum and I could hear the rushing of the creek. And I think, cause I was one of the only people there and I had the light on, there were moths gathering at the door. And it was a really, powerful moment where I realized that everything around me in the environment was part of the music as well. those lucky moths. <laughs> Wish I could have heard you. What year was that, Conrad? This probably would have been like in 08 or something along those lines, sometime like 14 years ago or so. Was Robert Spano artistic director or music director at that time? I don't think he was yet. As ah. It was a few years before then, but, uh, but Aspen does have that continuity for sure. Yes. Oh, and <laughs> I, I share your awe, particularly as a Chicagoan, as a Midwesterner growing up on very flat land, and then seeing the majesty of that setting in Aspen. Those mountains are astonishing. Well said. Yes, yes. You don't take it for granted at all if you grew up in suburban Illinois. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis. My guest is the pianist and composer Conrad Tao. 
The final movement returns to the bubbling gaiety of the first movement. And I wonder if you feel like the final movement is a recap of the opening. Oh, interesting. Well, in some respects, I think it is. In, 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 sonically, it's very uh, reminiscent of the first movement. It lives in similar registers as, as the first movement. And there, I would say, the whip crack returning for one very well-placed moment in the finale brings the mind back to the start of the work for sure. And I, I, I doubt that that was an accident. Although, you know, recently what my take on the last movement has been is that I think that the last movement is about Ravel's cats. Oh. This is not, I will say, this could just be a complete crackpot theory. I have never found anyone else with this theory. But I was recently practicing this piece. I don't remember when, but like I was practicing the very, very, very end of the work. This last little gossamer passage that he gives the piano that sort of like inspires the orchestra into a frantic hum or revelry and and then the piece kind of suddenly ends after the whole orchestra like raises up to a boil and then the piece ends so this final little gesture at the piano it's like this slithery little texture what i ended up feeling like when i was at the piano playing this gesture i felt like a cat <laughs> I felt like a cat. I felt like I was pawing at the keys repetitively. And so I just, it was, it was just a sudden realization as I was practicing. And I was like, I feel like a cat, literally. And then I just thought to myself, because I didn't know the answer to this question. I thought to myself, I wonder if Ravel had cats. And I Googled it. And not only did Ravel have cats, Ravel had an entire family of sphinx cats. Oh my. I think they were sphinx cats. Now I'm terrified that I'm getting this wrong, but he had a family of cats that he observed obsessively. And so I, I feel like that is all the confirmation I need that my theory <laughs> has a chance of being correct. That's what I keep thinking about. You know, the language, as we discussed earlier, the language of the movement is very clearly inspired by you know, American jazz and certainly has all these amazing characteristics of Ravel's own kaleidoscopic and colorful harmony. But I gotta say, ever since I had that little thought, the whole movement has started to feel like that to me. Do you have cats, comrade? I do not, but I love them. Oh. And cat owners, I know, pet owners in general, I, I know have sometimes described their pets as getting the zoomies. <laughs> yes. And uh, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 perhaps for any pet owners listening to this today uh, who might, who are on the fence about purchasing a ticket to the concert, perhaps if I tell you that the final movement of this concerto might be about the zoomies, perhaps you'll, you know, think about getting a ticket. don't think anyone should hesitate about <laughs> attending this concert. Ravel described his new work as 
a concerto in the truest sense of the word. I mean that it is written very much in the same spirit as those of Mozart and Saint-Saëns. The music of a concerto should, in my opinion, be lighthearted and brilliant and not aim at profundity or dramatic effects. Uh, how would you characterize this concerto as it lands in regard to what Ravel stated? I'm familiar with that quote, and I think it is, it's very indicative about some of his goals with the piece. I think, first of all, I think that his comment about not gesturing towards profundity and what have you, and, and how that relates to a concerto, is somewhat is somewhat undermined by a piece that he was composing, I believe, in the middle of his working on this concerto, the piano concerto for the left hand, uh, which is a very different piece from this concerto in G that I'm performing, but is a much darker, much more, in many ways, much more serious work in tone, uh, which I would definitely say gestures at profundity in a, in a pretty naked way. What I think about this piece, though, is that I think Ravel wrote this piece with Mozart very much in mind. I think you can actually hear that. I think you can hear that in the timbre of the ensemble. The orchestration is quite, uh, it tends towards the treble end of things rather than the bass. And so there is so much, you can actually really feel this in your body, I think, when you listen to it. As you said, the piece opens with a whip crack, which is a very, very high frequency sound. And then it's just like a whirly gig of sounds that I would describe it as sounds that live in the top half of your body. They, these are sounds that hit you in the top half of your body. These are sounds that almost sound like a brain at work, perhaps. Like the, these, these sounds that are higher up. I would say that the formal elegance, the rhythmic elegance of Ravel's music across the board is actually very Mozartian. And I know that he's thinking in this concerto about a very, very traditional three movement structure, fast, slow, fast. The finale is a, is like three and a half, four minutes long. It's sort of a rapid, lighthearted summation of everything that's happened. I think that, you know, I think that the piece is a very classical concerto. It just uh, happens through its foregrounding of a very modern musical language, very modern at its time, it doesn't necessarily sound like a Mozart concerto to our first listening ears. Pianist and composer Conrad Tao will perform Ravel's piano concerto with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra this Thursday and Friday, February 23rd and 24th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll hear about the new Atlanta-centric musical variety show. Now dig this. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Watching an episode of the Atlanta-centric variety show, now dig this, is like watching a time capsule opened for a new generation to ponder. The Retro Vibe program, which airs on the public access channel People TV, was created by Randy Michael of the Atlanta record label In Crowd Recordings. Episodes are produced by Max Amirjanov and star Atlanta personality and drummer Pietro Di Janeiro. 
featuring multiple musical performances and brief conversations, Now Take This most often showcases bands from Atlanta's diverse independent music scene. When City Light senior producer Kim Drobes recently caught up with Randy Max and Pietro, they started discussing Randy's unique musical journey, which began when he was only 10 years old. I started playing music in 1996 uh, after seeing the movie La Bamba. And by the time I was 11, I was playing pubs in Sandy Springs and in Little Five Points. I can only play one song, you know, because I, you know, I'm not supposed to be there. <laughs> play one song. I, you know, met this guy Josh Sattler, who's in a band called Double Drive, and kind of took me under his wing. Um, and when I was 16, I joined Public Enemy for the Revolution tour. What happened between 11 and 16 that you got to join that tour? Oh, I was just engulfed in, you know, music. So between. 11 and 16, I was just playing and learning and learning and learning and learning. And then my mother just happened to be friends with Professor Griff of Public Enemy. They decided to take me on. I did two months with them. And then, you know, I had to go back to being a sophomore in high school. What was it like touring at 16 with such a a popular band? Uh, Well, nothing, because I was pretty much guarded. You know, I I could do anything. Uh, you know, I'd show up, eat, play the gig, and, you know, I couldn't have any, like, you know, fun. The fun that would happen in about two years, you know, from there. Uh, so, yes. And then when I was 18, I joined Butch Walker's band as a bass player, you know, and we were touring. We were doing these uh, the arena tours in Canada with Alvaro Levine. Wow, at 18. Yeah, we're opening up for her because I think Butch had written her a single at the time. And then, I, you know, I, I, I would just tour with him. And then when I come home, you know, I, st- I started uh, my band, The Boos. When I wasn't playing with Butch, I'd be playing with The Boos. And then I'd go back on tour with Butch. So that was my life from about 18 to 23, you know. And, you know, playing with Butch Walker, you know, especially that young, you know, we got to do a lot of cool things. You know, we got to, we did the Ellen DeGeneres show. We did Austin City Limits. It was the first time I went to London was with Butch Walker. I'm playing the V-Fest with Butch Walker. I see Paul Weller, you know, Paul Weller from the Jam Style Console, one of my, was one of my heroes at the time. And I was too nervous to talk to him. So I asked the guy next to me for a lighter, and that happened to be Joe, and he was playing drums in a band called the Pipettes. And the Pipettes, they were like a modern-day English Ronettes. And then when uh, that band kind of fell apart, Joe was like, hey, you want to move to London and uh, join my band? And I, had, I told Butch, hey, I got to go. I have to do this with Joe. And that changed my life. Wow. When I got when I got back, when I, my visa ran out, um, I called up Tuck Smith of Tuck Smith and Restless Hearts, who was in the Biters then. And I said, hey, man, I'm going to come back to Atlanta. Uh, I'm going to put the booze back together. I'm going to do this thing based on the Ready, Steady, Go TV show. I'm going to call it Now Dig This. Uh, you know, I was at the time, I was watching a lot of uh, Ed Sullivan shows and Hall of Blues and Ready, Steady, Goes. I was, I was like, man, you know, if you can get people to come and dance around to a song that nobody's heard before, then people that you don't know might be like, oh, well, maybe it's a good song. Or maybe it's a good band. It's like the first person is not going to get on the dance floor. Somebody else has to dance first before someone else can get on the dance floor and feel comfortable. I get that. So you originally created Now Dig This about a decade ago. Yeah. How did it get back on your radar to be resurrected and turned into a series for people tv well initially i always wanted to do it at people tv um that was always the goal but i couldn't get people tv because i had lost i'd lost contact with max in high school but now finally we added each other on instagram and you know i was asking hey man you still work at people tv i'm trying to get this show back on the road and it's like yeah i still work there and we started making the new now doing this as we know it now uh last summer 2021 summer 2021 and Max, it's my understanding that you've been in the industry quite a while, having produced your first television show almost 20 years ago. What was it like reconnecting with someone that you hadn't really seen since high school to work on a collaborative project like this? 
Well, it, it was great, honestly. You know, it's good to see Rance throughout your life doing good, you know. And I remember back in high school, Randy was doing his music scene, you know. He was part of the booze. I went to go see their studio. He was recording with a couple of people. And I was always, like, intrigued by that and happy by that. He's kind of like me, whereas, you know, he just picked up an instrument and, you know, without any, like, formal training... Is, is just embedded in him to do music. And me, in high school, I picked up video production and I started producing television. So it just happened for us where, you know, he clicks on the music side, I click on the video production side. That's fantastic. Well, Pietro, for the unfamiliar, Pietro's a popular Atlanta drummer playing with bands like Bad Spell and Midnight Larks. Why did you want to move out from behind the drum kit and become essentially a late night talk show host? This was something that I've always really wanted to do, to be honest with you, because I've made uh, a few attempts to have a musical talk show. I, really? I would do them live in Baltimore, Maryland, where I'm from, on stage at the Autobar. So this was something I was always kind of interested in doing. And uh, after moving to Atlanta, Georgia, and then when I hooked up with Randy, you know, who I was also in a band with. I was the uh, drummer of the booze for a portion of that band's existence. And uh, and we were watching all these uh, public access shows, you know, and we fell in love with them. They were just so funny. And it would be thought it would be so great to have something like that. And next thing you know, I'm behind a desk hosting, uh, hosting the show. Welcome to Now Dig This. And now, ladies and gentlemen, he drank your last beer while flirting with your sister, America's shaggiest sweetheart, Pietro. Making it happen, and it was just so wild. Well, your self-deprecating humor and quick wit is highlighted on Now Dig This. I believe you once described your signature look as something close to Charles Manson if he was a couch potato. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Randy Michael made that joke. <laughs> You're often seen drinking on set and joking about your party lifestyle. So where does the Pietro you're playing on Now Dig This intersect with real life Pietro? I feel like that's how I got chosen for this job because... For some reason, uh, Randy Michael thinks I'm hilarious. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, he believed in me and, you know, he would, I guess, watch how I would interact with other musicians and he would come up behind me and say, that's what I'm talking about. We need to get something like this on TV, this interaction, you know, it, it, it's fantastic. That's pretty much how it just really came to light, really, you know. I've been uh, playing drums since I was a child, and, you know, playing drums gave me this opportunity. You know, I had to come from there in order to get here. Well, Randy, now dig this, I feel like, shines when it comes to your live musical performances. Will you detail how they come together? So the show is like, properly done like American Bandstand where it's they're just miming to their single. No wonder it sounds so dang flawless. Yeah, because we have to take into account that we only have four hours, maybe three sometimes in that studio to shoot everything. You know, with four bands, Pietro's uh, monologue, uh, his bits in between, record versus record, a couple of takes. We have to set the stage up, tear it down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All that in three and a half hours, you know. Yeah, with four bands. Yeah, everything was like go, 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 go. Yes. You know? That makes a lot of sense. I got to say, though, I'm pretty impressed with the bands then being able to lip sync to their music. I would assume that's got to be challenging as a musician. I think it's more challenging um, lip syncing them to their audio while editing and stuff like that. This is all Max Magic making it look like it was easy for them. Yeah, yeah, more than likely. But I mean, it's, I mean, we blasted really loud, but it's yeah. just, and I, I'm sure people sometimes feel a little silly because, you know, they can't really see the, uh, what it's going to look like in the end, you know, the result, you know, but you know, if we get it done, we make it happen. It looks good. It, it's TV, you know, you, you're always going to have some editing to it, you know, right. and then you got to present it in a way that it looks flawless. It looks right. natural. Sure. Some of the production on Now Dig This seems very classic public access. There's some effects that also feel very deliberate to the tone that you're trying to set. Would right. you share some of your thoughts behind using these retro techniques? I'm thinking like laugh track swipes and some yeah. of the aged look on the video performance. Definitely. Well, People TV, like Randy said, it's an old studio. It's been... Um, I think on air for, I think maybe going on 50 years or something like that. So they have a lot of old equipment in there as well. 
So when you have three cameras filming, they have a video board and you can use different type of swipes, uh, whereas it's a circle that blows up or it's just a, uh, a diagonal swipe through the video. And then what I also try to do is, let's say it's a country song. I try to put some filters on the video to give it that country look. That's what I basically do. I try to give the, the essence of the song, try to make it come more alive, try to make it look official as it can be. The show also includes some very Pietro-centric segments like Open Call with Pietro, which involves <laughs> Pietro taking calls from viewers and Record versus Record, where you invite a local musician to bring a favorite album I don't know if it's so much for discussion as much as it is for critique, but are those segments pre-planned or are they improvisational? Those segments are absolutely uh, improvisational, you know, because I don't know what record they're going to bring on the program and I, it gets revealed right in front of me right there and they don't know what I'm bringing. So I just tell them to bring a record that influenced you onto the show and I will bring a record that I've been currently listening to and has been a big influence on me and we'll just go at it. So yeah, it's a hundred percent improvised. Also, I'd like to, I'd like to add that a uh, record versus record was something that we used to do with each other. So we'd put like, you know, say we were sitting at the roll somewhere like me, Pietro, or, you know, any one of our friends and somebody brings up a band, right? And if I don't like the band and he likes the band, we're going to put, I'll put somebody else up against it. It's like rock and roll sports center where we'll start, uh, <laughs> you know, putting your whole album on trial. And that's where that came from. I remember those. <laughs> well, right now, I believe you've finished season one. You're well into season two. Randy, what's next for now? Dig this. Well, we're trying to get a few like streaming services like a, a Tubi or a, you know, night flights or, you know, something that it makes sense on. But we're just going to keep chugging along, you know, as long as we can. Randy, Michael, Max, Amir Shanov, and Pietro Di Gennaro. Speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. Toward the end of their conversation, Randy mentioned that they were hoping to get Now Dig This on a streaming service. And we're happy to share that they've since been picked up by night flights. More information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE. <laughs> The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.